Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Dr. Cubitt. We're going beyond the barn. Come join us on this journey as we bust equine and livestock nutrition myths and interview some of the most intriguing experts in the country. We'll go behind the scenes of how premium Western quality forage is grown and brought to your favorite farm and ranch retail store. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Barn. Dr. Cubitt, thanks for joining me today. I am excited to be back. Today, we are getting into the month of December. Lots of things on our mind right now, the hustle and bustle of the holiday season. But another thing that we need to be thinking about is, and this is something that we can probably, honestly, would probably be better to think about a little bit more in the fall time, but it's still quite relevant now. But how much hay do I need to plan for when we own horses and other livestock and then hay storage tips to prevent fire or loss or anything like that? Because once you buy that hay, you want to make sure that you can keep it dry and have it so you can feed your animals safely as well. Absolutely. It can be very daunting for people knowing, you know, am I going to get through the winter? I only have a certain amount of hay. I only have a certain amount of space. And we always know that the unknown, that's what's the scariest. So if we can assign some values and say, okay, you need this much hay and, oh, wow, I don't have that much space. So what else can I do? Or I haven't been able to buy that much. What else can I do? And you have a good game plan going into the colder months, then I think we all feel a little bit better. Right. Definitely helps our confidence for sure. And before we get started, I just wanted to share that any of the topics that we cover on the Beyond the Barn podcast, they're more generalized and they're not specific to any of our individual horses or our specific situations. So just be sure to always work with your veterinarian and your nutritionist before making any drastic changes to your horse's feeding program. You can also reach out to us to talk directly with Dr. Cubitt or Dr. Duran on any specifics that you would like to know more about. And to get us started, you hear this question from me all the time, but it's an important question that we always need to have kind of at the forefront. But obviously now that we're getting into winter, but thinking back when we normally begin to prepare for the winter cold months, we need to try to identify about how much hay our horse will need. So to start this planning process, what is the range of how much hay a horse needs to consume every day, Dr. Cubitt? And that's a great question. And I usually go with the recommendation of anywhere between one and a half to two and a half percent of their body weight. So if you have a thousand pound horse in the winter when there's no grass available, they need to be consuming 15 to 25 pounds of dry forage per day. Excellent. And I think the important thing to note about this episode is that we're going to be giving some horse examples in here, but it actually is very relevant for a lot of other species. So Dr. Cubitt, I mean, what other species can we, you know, take into account when we're thinking about feeding and storing hay? Well, I mean, I've got a table here and when I use to evaluate different animals and a lot are really sit in that one and a half to two and a half percent of body weight. But then if we look at something like goats, they can be up to four percent of their body weight. Most cattle up to three percent of body weight. Sheep as well, up to four percent of body weight. Pigs really won't eat that much max out at about one percent of body weight. And then our, our llama and alpaca again about two percent of body weight. I don't think anyone really has camels, but if you do, they're gonna eat about one percent of their body weight per day as well. Yeah, maybe we have some podcast listeners that do owe camels. 
Maybe. If you do, email us and let us know at podcast at stanleyforage.com. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's important, right? Because sometimes, you know, we own horses. There are people that own lots of other animals as well. And we need to store hay for any of those animals. So just be thinking about some of these examples that we'll be doing to fit your situation. And with that amount per day in mind that you spoke about for horses, Dr. Cubit, how can we go about figuring out this math? You know, how much should we try to plan to store in advance if we have the ability to do so for the winter months? Okay, so you first have to decide how long is your winter. And when I do this analogy for most of my clients, I've really worked out that it's about five months. And that's not five months of dead winter, but that's the fall where the grass has really gone dormant and we don't want them to chew it down to the stubble so that it won't come back next year. And then we have the winter months and then we have spring mud season where we don't want them out in the fields trashing them. So I've calculated to be about five months for most of us. That's 150 days. So if I go in the middle of the one and a half to two and a half percent of body weight and I say 2% is our value that we'll use for this example, I take 2% of my thousand pound horse and that's 20 pounds, and I know that there are 150 days in our five-month window. So I take 20 pounds times 150 days, and that's an even 3,000 pounds of hay or one and a half tons that we need for one horse for those five months. And that seems really overwhelming, but at least now it's a value. It's a number that we can work with. We know we need 3,000 pounds for a horse for five months, and now we can evaluate, well, where am I going to get that from? What are the size of the bales that I have? Out here on the East Coast, for me, a lot of the local grass bales run around 40 to 50 pounds. So if we go with 50 pounds, that's going to be about 60 bales. Okay, now the number's sounding a bit more reasonable. 60 sounds a whole lot more than 3,000. So I think then if you just don't have the storage area or you just don't have that much, then there are other things we can do. Right. And so, okay, you're talking about this 3,000 pound amount. And this is like, like you said, this is about, right? Because you could live in an area where you have longer winters or maybe, you know, you live in a warmer climate. So just take that into account. Well, maybe you're feeding two and a half percent or 3% of your horse's body weight. I'm just going on the average of two. Right. And so this is just a little bit of a side note, but in reference to the last episode that we recorded, Dr. Cubit, so this, you know, of course, doesn't take into account also our extra cold days over the winter that can occur or rainy, windy days or anything like that, where horses are, they're going to have a higher requirement of energy to be able to stay warm. And for those wanting to reference this episode, it's episode 24, why horses need to be fed differently during winter, if you want to hear more about that. But... Dr. Cubitt, in this episode, you suggested utilizing hay alternatives to help us through some of those unexpected weather conditions that can occur. How can we safely do that to kind of help minimize digestive upset in that transition? And when Katie's referring hay alternatives, we're talking about our bagged forage products like a hay pellet, a hay cube, a chopped forage. And as long as it is the same variety that your horse is used to eating. Let's say you're feeding a Timothy long stem hay is your base. If you then chose Timothy pellets or Timothy cubes to go with that, then there really wouldn't be a lot of a transition. The transition is knowing that horses will eat pellets and cubes a whole lot quicker than they will eat long stem hay. So 
I don't want you to get to a point where, oh, we've gotten to four months, we've completely run out of hay, and now we have to go to 100% pelleted or cubed forage. Unless you have a horse that has no teeth, then that's what you're doing. But that's why we want to now work it out. And so, okay, I only have 40 bales. I don't have 60 bales. So we're going to then work out how much pelleted forage am I going to feed every day to get me through? And when you calculate this, I didn't put in a buffer, but you bring a very good point that if you live in an area where you could have really, really cold weather or rainy, wet weather, why don't you give yourself a 30-day buffer? So say we know we've got four months of winter, then you would still allocate five months. That gives you that 30-day buffer. And, you know, hay doesn't go bad. So it's not like you're going to waste it if you have a little bit extra left over. But I think instead of having abrupt transitions, we want to try and spread it all out evenly throughout the whole five months. So I would start by if I was going to feed 10 pounds of hay a day and 10 pounds of forage products, or I'm going to feed 15 pounds of hay per day and five pounds of pellets or cubes, then I would do that all the way through. Okay. And so we have... You know, we have all this hay, right? I actually happened to see in a Facebook group that I'm in, someone was, they were so concerned. Like, hay can be expensive, right? The cost to feed animals is, I mean, in agriculture is like one of the highest costs associated with animal ownership. And this person said that they wanted to learn more about hay storage. And they said that they were so afraid to invest in a lot of hay and then ruin it because they stored it wrong. So... That's what this episode is all about. I want to start talking about how we can properly store this hay to, you know, for one, make sure that everybody, including animals, stay safe and we don't have like a random fire happen, but then also that you don't have spoilage, right? Because, you know, while some animals can handle a little bit of that to an extent, horses, they can't. Horses are very fickle. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so... Dr. Cubit, can you talk to us about water and moisture and how that impacts hay storage? Water and moisture don't go with hay storage. That's as far as you need to go. You need to keep your hay dry and out of any kind of moisture. So you want to try and keep it under cover, whether that means a really good top or inside. Don't stack your hay under a leaky roof and think, oh, it's great. I've got it under a roof. No, because it's going to drip. And we've got it sitting there for potentially five months of this water drip, drip, drip. And a little drip might not seem like much, but if you put a bucket under that, it's going to fill up really quickly. So we want to, number one, we want to make sure we keep it in a very dry environment. That also means don't stack it directly on the ground. You think the ground is dry? It's not. There's a lot of moisture in the ground and it can actually seep up into the bottom layer of your hay. And then depending on how many bales are on the bottom, they could all be wasted. We always recommend that you use a pallet or some way to lift the hay up. Even if it's on a concrete floor, I still then like to put it on a pallet and get it up off the floor because even out of the concrete, you can leach moisture. Absolutely. And thinking beyond just long stem hay, right, we have our hay alternatives that are bagged. And that's something that, you know, I think we need to think about and talk about because I think people associate it being bagged that it's waterproof, especially like for the Stanley bags, the way that they look, they're not in a paper bag or anything like that. And so 
I mean, does it need to be stored the same way as long stem baled forage or how does that impact our bagged forage? So we have a little bit more protection, but like you say, it can kind of mislead the consumer a little bit. All feed and hay bags. So whether you're buying a commercial feed concentrate or you're buying a hay product, a pellet or cube in a bag, those bags are breathable because we need to make sure that in the hotter climates that we're able to get rid of any moisture or heat. So they are breathable and moisture will seep into them. So again, either storing them under a top or under a waterproof roof in a building. One thing I neglected to mention is you still need airflow as well. And that's why we're getting it up on a pallet. And again, the bags, same thing. Stack them on a pallet and make sure that there's airflow all the way around. So with your hay, don't stack it right up against the wall because that wall will be a conductor of the outside elements. So it will conduct any of that moisture might come through the wall unless you've got fully insulated walls. But I like to keep the hay away from the wall, keep the bag product away from the wall so that we have airflow going all the way around. That reminds me of, and obviously it's a lot thinner than it would be for like a wall of a shed or something like that. But going camping when it's early morning and you wake up and there's all that like moisture, like if you touch it from the inside, it's wet. (laughs) Oh yeah. And your tent rains on you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that just reminded me of that. But somebody else had asked about this, but can a carport work for hay storage? It depends on your carport. I mean, there's a, in my mind, people have different definitions of a carport. So if I am visualizing what most people think, like the roof and the four posts, and there's no kind of sides or front and back, then yes, you could, but you would have to still put tops on the side. Yeah. Okay, good. That was one thing I was going to ask about. If it can work, what can we do to make it work the best way possible? So, and then... Okay, you mentioned that hay cannot be stacked on the ground. So that was an important thing that we touched on as well. In your opinion, how much space at a minimum should a horse owner plan to have in order to store hay properly? And I know we talked about this a little bit. There's so many dependents that come with this, but I've seen a lot of, especially people getting into owning horses, they have that question. You know, they're planning the property, either they're going to buy and fix up or what have you. But their question is, how much space should I plan for to store hay? And, you know, you're right. We talked about this and it's very overwhelming because it depends on the size of the bales. It depends on whether you have the ability to stack them really, really high. So to come up with something, I drew on my little piece of paper and I said, okay, well, if we have our average grass bales that are about 50 to 60 pounds and we stacked them five long ways and four across ways. And so we have a rectangle on the ground. Then based on the average size of these bales, they're about 14 inches high, 18 inches wide by about 35 inches long. These are rough, again, just to give a bit of an idea. Then Based on my picture that I drew on my little scrap piece of paper here, then we're going to need about 14 and a half feet length by about six feet wide and about four feet high. And we want to also make sure that we leave room then, so another foot at least, around each wall of that for airflow. Then, you know, there are compressed bales, which are still 50 pounds, but they're squeezed into a smaller size. So they're 16 inches high. 
by 12 inches wide and 24 inches long. So we've now, if we do the same stacking pattern and we do five long ways and four across, now we only need a 10 foot by four foot high space to keep them in. So that's more convenient if we do that. Then there are also the gigantic bales. And I started kind of working that out, the big three string, 100 pound bales. Now, your issue with those is you need more floor space because you can't stack as high unless you have a tractor. They're just, or you have a really, really strong person to lift them. So I didn't even really work that out. But that gives you a bit of an idea of the floor space. And that's just one way of stacking it. I mean, you can play Jenga with these hay bales and stack them any which way you like. If you can go up higher and you're strong and you can throw them up or you need to have them lower and space them out. But that's just a bit of an idea. But that also, you know, we've had several, do I have the space? Your client worried about, do I have the money? And I don't want to worry about it going bad and spoiling. It's really great if our horse owners, our clients, have the money to invest in five months worth of hay. You know, when you buy in bulk, it's always a better price and they can store it in a great place and there's not going to be any spoilage and it's all going to be, you know, that's a perfect world. But it's expensive. You've got to have the storage area. Not a lot of people have the finances to tie up in that much hay, just sitting there doing nothing until a horse eats it, waiting to potentially, you know, go bad if rats get into it or whatever. So that's another reason why adding in your bagged forage products, like your pellets or cubes, to your daily program, because you can go to the store and you can buy those every two weeks, every week. They're not taking up space. They're not taking up your money. You know, they are a wee bit more expensive to buy, but you're outlaying that when you need to. You don't have that money that's just tied up. So there's a lot of different reasons. Right. And depending on where you're getting your hay, you know, there's value associated with the quality and consistency that you could be getting as well, right? So for example, with the Stanley product, you could be in Oregon and buy it, and then you could be over in Missouri and buy it, and you know that you're getting a consistent product. Whereas if you were to get local hay from either of those areas, it would be quite different. Quite different. And anything that comes in a bag legally has to have certain documentation with it, a guaranteed analysis, so you know that it's going to be bag to bag region to region, exactly the same. And that example that you gave us, Dr. Cubit, for like the spacing for those kind of regular, you know, size bales, but then those compressed bales, you figured that based off of, was it about the 60 bales that we spoke of earlier? So that would be about that five month time frame, right? Yes, yes, that was the 60 bales. Sorry, I didn't mention that. 60 bales, our 3,000 pounds for our one horse, Most of us, most people we know don't just have one horse. You've got two, three, four horses. So if we've got four horses, we're looking at 240 bales and tripling the space. Yeah, and that's more space, right? So this, and like you said, this is just something, and I want to make sure that everybody understands that, you know, these numbers, they're not going to be like super exact. Again, it's super dependent. It's just a starting point. Right. At least get you thinking about, that process, especially if you're curious, you know, to think about how it works specifically for you. But one thing that people also get concerned about when storing hay are pests. So what concern do we have with pests? And like, what type of pests? What type of pests as well? Oh, a lot of concern. 
again, with horses, because horses are so fickle, well, any kind of rodent, rats, mice, carry all kinds of disease. And if they're dying in your hay and then accidentally get fed, you know, we run the risk of botulism. But one of the big concerns is certain wildlife, opossums, and there's even some research that suggests cats can carry the disease EPM, equine protozoal myoencephalitis, the protozoan that caused that disease. And then when your horse eats the hay that might be contaminated with droppings from that animal, they then contract that disorder. So definitely you live in an area where that disease is prevalent. You need to be even more careful about storing your hay and keeping rodents out. And so specifically speaking to those pests, those rodents, what kinds of things can we do to help minimize that, those animals getting into those areas? Again, just keeping that, you know, if it's an enclosed area, I would have in the past said, get yourself a great barn cat. But then I've seen research that has suggested that cats can even carry EPM. So again, if you're in an area where EPM is high, you may not want to have your cats in there. If you're in an area where EPM is not a big deal, then having a great barn cat might just keep the mice out of it. But when it comes to possums, really kind of keeping that top tight over your hay It's a difficult one because not everybody wants to use pesticides or chemicals to keep. It just depends on your area. Yeah. Right. And so if you have it wrapped up, you know, well and everything, the biggest concern is the feces. Yes. Okay. So as long as they can't get in and on it and... I mean, make it difficult for them to get in there. (laughs) Make it difficult so they're not nesting in it. Absolutely. And then another huge, huge concern. Most of us have probably seen or hopefully never experienced, but the horrific images of barn fires. How in the world does a barn fire happen in regards to hay? When it's hay, it's hay that either gets wet or is put up slightly damp. And so... Any of our listeners who've heard me talk about the digestive system and we talk about the bugs, the microbiome that live in the hindgut and how a byproduct of them fermenting the fiber that you feed your horse is that they create heat. That's the principle that occurs in hay that we get this when you squeeze that hay together and it's kind of damp in the middle. Now we're in what we call an anaerobic environment. So those bugs in there that are fermenting, rotting that fiber, breaking it down, they create heat. And if it's wet enough and they're creating enough heat, fermenting it well enough, then we can create fire. So if you're worried about it, then I just recommend you can just stick a temperature probe into your hay. And if you get above a certain temperature, then you can certainly, that's why I recommend also having airflow around because if we have airflow we're able to dry it out anyone who's made silage for example the fermented hay products we wrap it in hay wrap the chopped forage with plastic that keeps the oxygen out so we have that anaerobic environment but that is very controlled but in the case of the barn fire it's not controlled and it gets too hot and then we have a fire and it's terrible And so a question that we get a lot is how long will stored hay last? I mean, can you purchase it thinking that you have to use it up within two months, like within a year or how does that work? Hay's great. I mean, if you store it well out of the light and away from contaminants, then 
immediately once it's cut in the field, it starts losing vitamin A and vitamin E. And that's pretty much lost within the first couple of weeks. But then after that, it'll last a long time, multiple years. What ends up happening is the fibers just start breaking down and then it becomes dusty. And so after a couple of years, you might not want to feed it because it's too dusty for your horse. But as far as nutritional value, it's still all there. Okay. So really it's the vitamin A and E, which happen quite quickly anyway. Very quickly. Yeah. For the nutrient content is the only part that really changes with stored A. As long, of course, like you said, it's stored properly. So. Yeah. But that being said, you always want to use your older hay first. So let's say you bought hay in August and you stacked it in your barn and then you're like, ooh, I just got a deal on some more hay that was like a, a just cut. I'm a, oh, I really don't want to move the hay I got in August, so I'm just going to stack this hay in front of it. No, do yourself a favor and pull the August hay forward and put your newer hay behind it so that you're using the older hay first. It's also going to stop, you know, if we're worried about rodents, they're going to be back there in that older hay, living life high. But the longer it is, yeah. Exactly. And side note, Dr. Cubit, I need to know how you handle this when you buy groceries at the store. Like, you know how people can stock up on certain, like, I guess, processed foods, like canned foods or things like that. When you buy those things and replenish your supply at home, do you take those cans that are oldest and put them in the back so you get the newest ones first? Or do you just put them all in? Usually I'm buying it because I ran out of it. So it wasn't in my pantry to start with. But if for some miraculous reason I was ahead of the curve, then I am very fortunate. I have a really nice big pantry. And so I put stuff, I put them behind and I can every year and I make sure that whatever I canned last year that I hadn't used, I'll bring that to the front and I'll put my newer stuff in the back. So I'm better with that than some people, but... And I wonder how many others, anybody listening, we would love it if you would reach out and let us know if like how you handle that. Because I'm the same way, but I didn't know if that was me just being like super, what do you call it? I don't know, just OCD about it or <laughs> or if there's other people that commonly do that. So it just, you know, I'm not going to do that with paper towels or something, <laughs> but yeah, food, I'm better about that. Right. Yeah. Okay. Back to our topic. I just thought that was kind of a fun side note there, but can you talk to us more about stored hay longevity and dry matter loss that can occur depending on if it's stored in a conventional shed, if it is tarped on a pallet, or if it is stored on the ground? Oh, and I don't have these numbers off the top of my head, but I know when you store it on the ground, it is significant the amount of dry matter loss. And if any moisture gets into it, if you haven't topped it properly, you're going to have significant dry matter loss because you're just literally throwing that bottom layer of bales away, especially if it's horses. We have a great link, don't we, Katie, that you can reference for the actual losses? Yes, yes. And we'll put this in the show notes. And it actually does talk about like these three examples and what the percent dry matter loss is and everything. And so we'll link that for everyone to check out in the show notes. Yes, I just quickly went to it. So now I feel like I know what I'm talking about. On the ground, it was 25 to 35% dry matter loss. That's a lot. A quarter to over a quarter of your hay is gone when you've just spent a fortune on it. That's terrible. And that is after a year, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's only for after a year. 
and only four to seven percent, and that was five years on a topped on a pallet, or four to seven percent loss in a shed after twenty years of storage. Now you're not going to be keeping your hay that long, but. This was the research. But isn't that kind of cool to know that that's all the dry matter loss that can occur after? Because <laughs> it just goes to show how well you can keep the elements out if it's in a shed that you can shut the door versus outside. Excellent. Okay, so some of our listeners I know live in very hot and humid environments. And so obviously this is going to be more of a concern in the summer months. But does that reduce hay storage life for those individuals? Yes, I would say that. You know, in a more dry, less humid environment, you can store your hay. Maybe you store it three years versus in a humid environment, you're storing it for only six months to a year. Yes. And so just to kind of wrap up this portion of it, we actually have a cool little thing that Dr. Cubitt found that we're going to talk about right after this. But to wrap up this segment, Dr. Cubitt, what are maybe two or three of your main takeaways that you would like to leave our listeners with today on this topic? Oh, I have 5,000 takeaways. But if I narrow it down to my top three, it's don't be afraid, sit down with pen and paper and work out, okay, how many horses have I got? Like get a plan. And maybe you want to do it, we're right into, it's coming into winter now. But if you're listening to this podcast in February and you're planning for the following year's winter, that'd be great because now we've got a whole year to kind of plan it out and buy up hay and products. But sit down and make a plan based on the amount of horses, the amount of body weight they have and the amount, average it out and, and give yourself a rough plan of how much hay you're going to need start sourcing it, and then realize you don't have the room to store it all. So what hay products am I going to buy in alternatives? Am I going to buy in pellets and how much of that? So in your mind, you have a plan. Give yourself a little bit of a buffer because you just never know. It might get really cold. Unfortunately, something terrible might happen and you have a hose leak and it wets two of your bales. So they're gonna. So give yourself a wee bit of a buffer. Don't skimp on hay. That is my final take home. It doesn't matter how much it costs. A colicking horse is way more expensive than any hay you can buy. Right. Expensive. And then just like having to experience that kind of trauma. And like, I mean, if it's the worst case scenario of a loss, yeah, that would just be awful. Awful. Well, excellent. Dr. Cubit, thank you for those notes. And you told me that you had a really fun Christmas or holiday gift idea that we should talk about on this episode. I do. I found, because we're coming into Christmas again, so apologies for anybody who's listening to this at another time of the year, but it's about treats for our horses for winter, well, any time of the year really, but I know at Christmas time we're all thinking, well, we want to give treats. What's a good treat? And so... There's so many treats on the market that you can buy. But if you want to have fun and make your own treats, then, and if you have time and maybe you want to make treats with your kids or they have friends at the boarding barn or at Pony Club or whatever, and they want to make little gift bags, then I found this on the Tufts Cummings Vet School. They have a really good vet school there. I found this recipe for treats that use things that you would have at home, probably even in your feed room. So beet pulp pellets, maybe you've got some rice bran or some ground flax, some oil. I thought this was a great note 
they said you use brown rice syrup if you're trying to keep the carbs low. But if you're not so worried about the carbs, your horse doesn't have laminitis or some other issue, then you could use caro syrup. Whole wheat flour, oats if you wanted, if you're trying to avoid grains, not needed, optional. Bit of salt, maybe you want to make it healthy and put some vitamin E powder in there if you have some. A little bit of peppermint oil if you have some. And then in a mini muffin tin, kind of mix all this together and bake it in the oven. We can share the link on our Facebook page, I guess, for this homemade horse cookies. I thought it was a neat idea. Yeah, no, that's so fun, especially if you're looking for something fun, like you said, to get together and do with a group and make it like kind of an experience, right? And do with a group, do with your kids. You know, everything's always so expensive. And if you want to have some like homemade little experience with your kids or your girlfriends at the barn. Yeah, this would be fun. And we will definitely, we'll put the link to this recipe in our show notes so you guys can check it out and see because there's measurements for each of those ingredients as well. Yes, there's measurements. It's more of a follow a recipe and all credit, all credit goes to the Tufts Vet School. I don't take any credit for it. (laughs) No, that's a fun idea. Since we're coming into the holiday season, it's fun to try some new things and, you know, maybe make some fun little traditions too. So thank you, Dr. Cubitt. That was a fun find that you had there. And then for our listeners, just so you are aware, we will not be having a new episode on December 21st. I know normally it's bi-weekly that we release new episodes, but we're going to be on a holiday break so we can kind of enjoy the holidays a little bit more and relax a little bit. But we will be back with our next episode on January 4th, right there into the new year. We'll be ready for you. And if you happen to be an Apple podcast listener, Please, we encourage you to leave us a rating and review. It really helps others who are interested in our topics know what to expect from our podcast. And so we would just love if you could leave us a rating or review. And then other than that, Dr. Cubit, enjoy the holidays. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Barn podcast by Stanley Forage. We'd love for you to share our podcast with your favorite people. And subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. Until next time, keep your cinch tight and don't forget to turn off the water.